Hey everyone, today we cozy up with Tina Marie Clark. She is a model, author, and the founder of the Shifter Method. We chat about how her early experiences shaped her and ultimately led her to found the Shifter Method and how this mindfulness practice helps women and people every single day become their best selves. Check it out. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. We're really excited um, to chat with you and learn more about your journey and the Shifter method. Thank you for having me. I'm super pumped. Uh, I love the title of your podcast. Clear Cut is, uh, you know, I like that my diamonds and my conversations just get cut to the chase. Clear Cut Answers. <laughs> Awesome. Um, well, we are, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, what is, um, you're the founder of the Shifter Method. What is the Shifter Method? I know it's a mindfulness practice, but can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what exactly it is and how, you know, what was your journey like founding it and, you know, creating it? So the Shifter Method is a five-step method to shift your perception. And I created this method out of necessity, out of my inspiration mm -hmm. came out of my desperation. I was completely, I just felt like I was a hot mess in all areas of my life. My relationships were failing. My um, interactions with people were just awkward and defensive. And I just knew that there had to be another way to live because I couldn't cope. I felt like I was in a constant state of um, reactivity, always just, it could be, you know, a FedEx driver giving me the wrong look and I was just stirring. So I knew I had to find a way to handle myself. <laughs> and it was, um, as I was going through the journey, I was really, I was very quick to blame it on everyone else. But when I took a look at what was happening, I was the common denominator and I started cultivating and not even cultivating, but really experiencing different workshops and reading, you know, different spiritual books. And at the end of that, um, not, I still do that, but in the interim, I really cultivated these five steps for myself that became the Shifter method, but really just were integrated into my day-to-day -day life to get me out of my own way and really allowed me to come back to center. And when um, I was stirring, meaning when I'm triggered and when I'm reactive and I want to go off and, you know, write that nasty email or when I was wanting to give an attitude, I really had mm -hmm. to find a way to not do that. So I used these five steps and then I eventually started sharing it with other people and it worked for them. And I was excited about getting that out to the world and it's helped, you know, other people to manage, you know, when they get knocked off course. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that's something, especially, you know, over the past year, I'm sure lots of people have been searching for, um, you know, a mindfulness practice. I know I have just because everything has been so out of control and, you know, out of our grip that 
we are searching for something to help ground us. Um, could you kind of walk us through the five steps of your method um, and how someone could begin to practice this in their daily life? Yes. So the five steps are stir, which is recognize, which is the first step. Stir, recognizing you've deviated into a negative thought pattern. So that's anytime you are in conversation or going about your day and all of a sudden your energy shifts where you take offense to something or you're surprised by something and you have, you know, fearful thoughts associated, that's a shift when you shift into a, you know, a negative thought pattern. That's when you're, or that's a stir. So when you, so the first step is recognizing you are stirring, you've deviated. Then there's the sit, which is sitting with your thoughts and emotions without offloading and trying to, decrease by reacting the suffering that you're in. We often want to offload it by these default defenses that we normally use. And we normally use like four or five consistently. Like we'll, you know, uh, draw inward or we'll be reactive and, and take a nasty tone or we'll use passive, pass, be passive aggressive or whatever it is we do to avoid feeling we use these things and that's our time. The sit is designed for us to sit within that desire, but not react in our default, what we normally do. Then there's the third step, which is the sift, which is sifting through and unpacking and unwinding the narrative of the stir. What did we tell ourselves that that you know, that email, that lack of an email, what did that eye roll mean? What did it bring up within us? When we weren't invited to that party, what did we say that meant about ourselves? So it's really um, unpeeling our fear and really getting to the core of it because it seems like it's coming up through this person, but it's really most often hitting on an injury that we've already had, a wound that we've already had. And it gets close to that through our self-narration, through the ego. And we sift through what our ego has made this stir mean. Then mm -hmm. there is the share, which is the fourth step. And that's doing what we're doing right now, being in communion with other women and sharing our truth and owning our awful, owning what's really going on, not just the sweet, great sides of, of life, but owning the darker aspects and owning the things that we often deem or other people deem as awful, but that are actually just human. Mm -hmm. And that forges connect, deeper connection with self and with others. And then the fifth step is the shift. That's the result. That's the byproduct of doing the four steps before it. You will shift your perception and the shift can vary in magnitude, be, being large or small. You could have a complete revelation where you're like, oh my gosh, that had nothing to do with that person. Or you could just see it through a softer lens. And the Shiftster method is designed to have you practice this way of processing things that stir you up. And do you think that um, someone should be practicing this or are people practicing this mindfulness um, 
these mindfulness steps like daily or um, a few times a day or weekly or what have you been seeing is the best um, consistency? Anytime you're stirring. So it, it depends. <laughs> and the more you do it, the less you'll stir it, probably. It, it's, it's really, um, it depends on the person. Like I said before, I never really mm-hmm. came out of a stir. I felt like I was in a stir storm. I spent years <laughs> inside of a stir storm. So um, everything I experienced from day to evening, I was experiencing it through the lens of somebody that was reactive and fearful at all times. So if it's some for someone like me, then they would have to process multiple stirs and, you know, they may even not even know when they're stirring. This is really for someone, anyone that is brave enough to look, no matter if it's okay, I stir once a day or I stir five times a week. It it really is applicable to anyone Mm -hmm. that is experiencing um, emotional suffering. Yes. Can you tell us um, more about the major shifts within your life and how those have helped to shape your identity? Oh, yeah. Um, shape my identity. I would say that the major shift or some of the major shifts I would have had to have made and have made have been about not taking offense, not always mm-hmm. making something about me. Like I said before, it was always someone else's fault. It was always they made me feel what you said made me feel this way. And when I started applying the method, I realized that no matter what someone said, even if it was heinous, even if someone called me a bad word or whatever it was, it was really my responsibility and really my conditioning that would allow that pain to increase or decrease. My narrative Mm -hmm. that I have or my identification with that name or that idea was really something that existed within me. So I feel like once I started applying the method and working through the method, I was able to have a different vantage point for observing myself because it became more about what was going on within me rather than what was going on, no matter what the circumstance. And for me, Mm -hmm. a lot of the time, I would bend and manipulate my perception to either confirm or deny my self-worth. So if I was in a dinner meeting with someone, I would my, my ego would, you know, survey the situation to see if they were trying to insult me or if they liked me or it was always looking for validating objects so I could feel better or if it wasn't to my liking, I would feel worse. So I would say the biggest shift is uh, having more uh, discernment on who's generating that. If, if that's self-generated or if it's coming from the external. And I think that those were two big shifts for me. And when in your life did you recognize this about yourself and realize that you needed to make like this internal change? Um, I, I would say that this is a hard question to answer because I would say that I started learning this when I was 11 
Mm-hmm. I started realizing that I was personalizing other people's stuff when I was 11. Okay. So that's and, pretty early. Uh, yeah. Because it, it, I remember specifically there was – we had these new cordless phones and it was this white phone. <laughs> and you could only get to a certain point in our backyard until the phone started cutting out. But I remember being on the phone with my mom talking about this and saying like, wait, how is it possible when I don't get, you know, invited to go roller skating on Friday night? How is that about me? They were just being (laughs) mean, mom. Like, how is that possible? Like, this is not about anyone else. This isn't Mm -hmm. about me. This is about, you know, her name was Jessica. I was like, this is about (laughs) Jessica. She's just so mean. She's so mean. She's terrible. And I really... Um, and that very well could have been true, but it was when I started realizing that that was the the lens that I was putting over that situation um, based upon my my own fears and anxieties. Yeah, you you. That's when you started like recognizing those tendencies in yourself, which I think you know at that same age I had similar tendencies, and it's hard to like understand how to deal with those types of emotions. Oh, they're crushing. Especially I think to a girl. I think like <laughs> we're we're getting our periods for the first time. We're we we're, we're like getting <laughs> boobs. We're about to go into like what is it? 6th 5th or 6th grade and you're just you're you're changing plus you're hormonal. Life is confusing. Oh, it's so confusing. <laughs> and all you want to do is fit in. And I just, I already didn't yeah. fit in, but the one person I did fit in did not invite me roller skating. And this was devastating. <laughs> <gasps> um, yeah, totally. And I feel like, you know, you take those kind of feelings and insecurities kind of with you into adulthood. And it's just, it is important to find ways to cope with that internally and have a more positive Um, mindset or like see things with an alternative viewpoint. Hey everyone, Olivia here. Hope you're enjoying our episode. Our clear cut collection features fine jewelry pieces inspired and designed with you in mind. Our collection is ever changing and each piece is handmade and made to order here in New York City. Don't forget to check it out and use the code COZY, C-O-Z-Y, for free shipping on any purchase. So when it, when did you decide to become an entrepreneur? Like, when did you decide to take this mindfulness practice and really create the Shiftster method? So um, I, I would say that this, you know, interest has been in me from a very young age. I've always been a seeker, but I didn't necessarily think it would ever turn into a career, even though I knew that it lit me up. Um, But I Mm -hmm. worked as a model since I was 15 years old and then stopped when I was, I think it was like either five or yeah, I think five months pregnant with my youngest son. I have two boys. One is two and one is five. And when I was pregnant with my son, Max, I thought maybe I would go back to modeling, but I eventually didn't. And the ache of wanting to do something of significance had really grown during that time. 
because I knew that my impact in the modeling world was limited in in translating what I had from my inside out. I was only judged by my external. Even though I had great relationships, I wasn't able to really um, express what I really had. And I felt like I had this thing that I, when I did it, when I spoke about it, I would just feel like I was on fire. Like I just felt so good when I was doing it. So I knew I needed to go towards that and explore that. But I was afraid because I didn't know what to call it. Like, what do you call this? What do I, what do you call liking Mm -hmm. talking about the soul and (laughs) what we do when we're afraid? Like, what do you call that? I knew I didn't want to be a life coach. I knew I wasn't, I didn't want to be a therapist. I knew I didn't want to do that, but I, I had seen predecessors. I love Marianne Williamson and Brene Brown and Pema Chodron and Elizabeth Lesser. So I knew that there was a way, but really my own insecurities were, there was, you could have told me like me being an author was the equivalent to saying I would eventually become like an astrophysicist or an astronaut. It seemed so far off. It was just like, (laughs) oh yeah, yeah, that's not happening. But eventually as I inched slowly towards, and, and I was working with a coach at the time, I still work with her. Um, as I would dedicate more time to exploring what lit me up, it started to become clearer and clearer as to Mm -hmm. the specifics about what lit me up in this genre. So I started working with her and then eventually it, I swear I, I, it sounds goofy, but I feel like the method just came down to me. Like it was like presented to me and it came all five steps at one time. It was like, okay, what you are is you're a shifter. I didn't even know what that means. I'm like, what do you mean I'm a shifter? And it, I was like, okay, like you stir shifts. This is what you do for yourself. This is what you can do for others. This is what you can teach others. And that's when I started writing my book. And I just knew that um, my ego, like my desire to have this outweighed my ego's narrative, meaning the part of me that identified with, oh, you, you're not a writer. Like, and it's with all due respect, I, you know, I, I can own my awful in saying that I am a terrible writer, <laughs> but my method and I know its application is way more powerful than that self-doubt. Yes. So I knew that that had to be birthed and I had to give life to this thing that was dying to exist. And it was an ache if I didn't do it. And I think that a lot of people are walking around with that dull ache in their heart where they know that they have, they don't really know the specifics. They don't know what to call it. They may not know, but they know that they have this thing that lights them up and they don't know how to, they don't know what to do with it. And it feels, you know, there's like a level of sadness that comes with knowing that you have something inside of you that has not, or you don't know will ever be expressed. So I am so thankful that I was able to, you know, inch towards that and, and get there because being on the other side of it and being with this modality and teaching women how to do this has been, um, besides my children, the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. It is so cool to watch women transform 
really deep, fearful thought, thought forms, you know, that they've been thinking for years and transforming them and letting go of the narrative and catching their ego in its attempt to rob them of their truth and their joy. So that's what I've always like, what else could I ask for? That is the best job in the world. So I, that's how it started. Yeah, that's awesome. To kind of shift gears a little bit, we are, as you know, a jewelry company, and I have admired your beautiful jewelry and rings on Instagram. Can you just tell us a little bit about some of your favorite, most significant pieces and, you know, why they're special to you? Um, I'm so glad you asked because I talk about shifter <laughs> method, which I love. And I did two podcasts before this. So I am so excited <laughs> to switch gears just because <laughs> I love jewelry. I don't know what it is that was like in me. I, uh, since I was like, a, like really, really small, like my brothers would go get the like, um, uh, gumballs in the machine and I would always get the rings in the machine like when you go to the grocery <laughs> store I always wanted yeah. like the obnoxious big ring I've wanted I <laughs> forever since I was a little child so I've always been conscious of jewelry in general and diamonds in particular I love diamonds I considered going to gemology school just to know deeply but then I knew I didn't want to work in retail because I just, I don't have the bandwidth for it uh, in terms of like, I need my own schedule, da, 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 da. <laughs> so I did not explore that, but I really deeply explored that um, going to auctions, going to Christie's, going to Sotheby's, you know, mm -hmm. looking at, uh, you know, when I would go to the museums and look at other people's jewelry, I was obsessed with Grace Kelly's diamond and mm -hmm. like Taylor's diamond. And I love uh, different cuts and all of that. My, my jewelry love is, is serious. And I, what I love about it is the storytelling. I love vintage jewelry. I love buying mm -hmm. vintage jewelry. I love thinking of the possibility of who wore this before and what was her story. What did she like, if she loved this necklace or this watch, like in particular watches, I love thinking of, okay, this got someone through this watch, watched someone have a baby or watched someone, you know, cry or whatever. It has this like sentimental value. Um, and whenever I would think of people getting uh, engaged or, and I would hear that they, they were not engaged, I would always put their engagement ring and I called it like the ring graveyard <laughs> because I was like, where do all those like lost engagement rings go? There's got to be like, you know, you hear over the years like, oh, they got engaged and then they broke up or, oh, they got a divorce. And I think of all of these diamonds that are just floating out there that exist, <laughs> but no longer have a finger. So it was like my, my ring graveyard. And I always thought, of, of that. And I, I fantasized of like finding a ring on the side of the street. I, I just, my, my love for jewelry is, is profound. Uh, my favorite pieces are, um, I would say my, I love my Serpenti, uh, 
gold Bulgari watch. Love that. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite watch. I bought it for myself. I actually bought it after I made the shifter method. Awesome. For and, myself. And a, so it marked like a special event in your life. Exactly. Which I love like, too. Yes. I wanted that thing so bad. And I knew <laughs> I had to buy it with my own money mm-hmm. because, um, and Dave, my man would have loved to have gotten it for me, but I knew that I needed to buy it for myself because I had created the method by myself. I had created all of it and I needed it to marry that I needed it to, to feel because obviously we, you know, men love to, you know, not all men, but some men like to shower. You get an engagement ring, you get a tennis bracelet, you get a this, whatever. Um, but it, there's something about it being your own piece that you made at or that you bought at a certain time that feels really cool. That being said, David, if you're listening, I don't like to buy all of my jewelry. <laughs> I like when men buy jewelry, but I did enjoy buying that watch myself. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've seen a lot of women, um, you know, buy jewelry for themselves to like mark like promotions or raises or like big significant events in their life. And that just makes it, you know, just ever like so much more special and meaningful. And that's what's so cool about jewelry too, is that there's a lot of significance and like emotional ties to these pieces that you can like have forever. Forever. And you, it's yours. It's it, there is just something mm-hmm. different. There is something very special. Like I love my engagement ring and it, and it marks the love and it marks us and it's everything. But there is something about when you buy something for yourself that marks a time and a feeling and, uh, that has nothing to do with anyone else. It's not about anyone mm-hmm. else, but you and your, how you felt and what you were doing. And I'm sure I could feel that on an average Tuesday, but I, it, it is nice when it's around, um, a significant time. And it was, it was a bigger purchase for me at the time. At, I was like, I, I could have my 15 year old self imagining buying myself that watch. It was just like, I, I just, it was so far off, but <laughs> you know, even that milestone of, you know, doing that and being able to was really cool for me as, as a woman, just as a, mm-hmm. as a businesswoman, as, as my own person, my own money. Um, so I, I also, another piece that is really important to me is I have a black onyx and gold um, ring that my dad, he actually just passed away from COVID-19 last month. I'm so sorry. He gave me, thank you. He gave me on my 21st birthday or like around that, uh, year, he Mm -hmm. gave me this gold and onyx ring that was his class ring. Like everyone else got these regular class rings and he got this black onyx gold ring. And I, um, follow his pa- following his passing, everybody was, you know, we were going through like the, just the basic things. Like he wore, um, he actually kind of started my love for pinky rings because he mm-hmm. wore his mom's, uh, wedding band on his pinky, uh, pinky finger. And I just thought it looked <laughs> so like, regal and he's a guy so it was kind of mafiosa it was like really boss (laughs) like people that wear pinky rings are bosses I don't know I don't care what anybody (laughs) says but for me they're either like a girl with like 
you know, a, you know, a signet ring that she's just like multi-generational, like fabulousness, or mm-hmm. you're like a mobster or an, an Italian, like, you know, mafiosa <laughs> guy. Like, and my dad, my dad is Italian. So, um, he, <laughs> I, he was just like a boss. So I loved pinky ring. Yeah. And that's, that's so special. Like, and that's what, is so cool about jewelry too. It has so much like storytelling and sentimental value. Now you can like wear some a reminder of him every day, which is so like so unique and so special. It is. Um, well, this was awesome. Um, I won't take up too much of your time, um, but I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us about your journey your method and your jewelry. Um, it was a real pleasure. Um, and if you could tell everyone, you know, where they can follow you, where they can, um, you know, follow the method, all of that, um, good stuff. You got it. So you can follow me on Instagram at, at Tina Marie Clark, and you can find the Shifter method book on Amazon. So it's, uh, the Shifter method. Awesome. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you guys have a great uh, day and thank you for having me on. It was such a pleasure getting to know Tina Marie and learning more about the Shiftster method. If you guys are interested in her method, check out her book is available on Amazon and you can follow her on Instagram at Tina Marie Clark. Just like Tina Marie's pinky ring, what piece of jewelry makes you guys feel like a boss?